Hello and welcome to The Bravest Kind, a podcast featuring behind-the-scenes stories of fearless individuals demonstrating bravery and kindness in their everyday lives. I am your host, Ryan Schaefer, and I am a firefighter and EMT with the Kirkland Fire Department located just outside of Seattle, Washington. I'm very excited to introduce today's guest, Laura Close. Laura is a co-founder and chief business development officer at Included, a tech startup in the field of diversity, equity, and inclusion. She is also the founder and managing partner of Close Cohen Career Consulting. In today's episode, Laura and I get real about how companies can level the playing field for those in minority communities and the importance of workplaces creating more diversity. We also discuss leadership along with the skills and traits individuals need to exhibit to thrive in today's corporate environment. I've known Laura for about five years and I've witnessed firsthand how she empowers others around her and helps people grow both personally and professionally. I have no doubt that you'll learn a lot from what Laura has to say. I know I did. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. I have with me today, Laura Close, co-founder and chief business development officer at Included, which is a tech software startup focusing on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Laura is also an entrepreneur, a leadership and executive career coach, a mother of two, a political activist. I mean, really just an all-around badass. And so I'm very excited and happy to have you today with me on this show. Thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Absolutely. Okay, so Laura, you've spent a large part of your career as a leadership and executive career coach, and we'll get into what you're doing now uh, just a little bit later. But I'm curious, what changes have you witnessed in this field in particular, and specifically over the course of the pandemic? Uh, Such a great question. Um, You know, I think that the most successful executives are individuals who recognize that their own personal evolution is intimately tied into their ability to lead teams, people, and organizations at scale. Uh, And so that's all just to say that the pandemic has affected everybody on a personal level. And so the most successful leaders were the ones who were able to not only name face and integrate the challenges and the personal growth opportunities that arose for them, uh, each of us month by month, but then to turn and face uh, the uh, large entities that they sit over uh, and really know that they're comprised of people who are on their own journeys in that process as well. Um, the challenge is really holding the tension between the business objectives, you know, the outputs, the products that we need to develop and ship, and the humans who are having this, you know, powerfully human experience. That human experience that you talk about, has that changed at all now that so much is being done? remotely. I think the traditional work environment, everyone's accustomed to going into office buildings and travel. And so much of that has been taken away. I'm just curious how that's impacted, in your opinion, that human connectedness, or maybe it hasn't at all. I'll start off with a little vignette, which is that at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, the portfolio of clients who I worked with spanned people from a variety of demographics and specifically, uh, it became very evident that the people who lived alone, completely alone, uh, no kids, oftentimes even no pets, 
um, had a wildly different experience of the pandemic than the people who had kids at home or sometimes even pets. So when we talk about purely remote work, I like to call those demographic differences forward because the ways in which we experience remoteness, right, really end up settling into what is that home environment. And so, you know, when we think about leaders during this time, we really want to make sure that leaders are considering sort of the divergent psychological experiences people are having in their unique home environments. And and I'll also tell you, Mm-hmm. You know, now that I'm in the DEI space, which has been part of, you know, my COVID journey, uh, kind of pivoting towards this space uh, during the pandemic, one of the most uh, interesting uh, hot topic emerging areas that's relevant to your question is the return to hybrid, right? So we're definitely going to go back to a workforce experience that is permanently different. And, you know, the word that we're using right now for that is hybrid, right? And so when we think about, again, how do we knit these diverse experiences together in a seamless, continuous, productive enterprise, um, that's really a hot button uh, topic right now in the DEI space. Do you foresee that as being the new norm, something that is here to say, I know it's hard to look into a crystal ball, but do you think five years, 10 years down the road, that being the case now in the business world, this long-term hybrid model? Yeah, I mean, the short answer, of course, is yes. When all is said and done, uh, the retreating back into our homes in order to quarantine at the end of the day has actually served to underscore the global nature of the workforce and the global nature of uh, the human experience in the you know contemporary telecommunications environment with the internet knitting us so tightly together. And so um, when we think about sort of the ways and the last vestiges, right, of the post-industrial production model, which is there's a building and there's a city and I go there, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. although we may feel that emotionally, <laughs> right? <laughs> We may feel that emotionally still. In fact, what's left for us at this stage is to just deeply acknowledge that, you know, humans and knowledge are wildly transitory and without boundaries at this stage. And so we do need to account for the super divergent psychological needs and experiences of the workforce and make sure that people who want to work in teams in a building have that opportunity. Um, But many people, especially people with, you know, young, very young children or other kinds of care providing or just their own mental health are absolutely going to continue to push for that stay at home experience and and rightly so. It is interesting. You talk about how this concept of isolation dramatically different depending Mm -hmm. on what that looks like. You know, if you have a a family at home, a nuclear family or an extended family, whatever the situation might be, you even brought up pets versus someone that is truly, truly isolated and living on their own and really took lockdown measures uh, seriously. I feel like I've always been fortunate with my job within the fire service then to also have even from day one that outlet to leave the house and still go to one of these physical mm-hmm. buildings, like you say, and be around coworkers. And that's been really uh, cathartic. And I think I only recognize that now looking back. I think, you know, when you're in the height of it all, you just you just carry on, right? That's what we do. But to actually have that outlet independent of my home existence and everything, it's really been a, a great thing. So some people are going to, I could see, seek wanting that interaction while others, the setup might be great. 
So, I mean, it's probably a matter of, I guess, companies coming up with a way then to, right, be flexible to that and recognize those needs and how can they cater to both sides? Yes. Yeah. So first of all, I just want to say that I was wildly jealous of your ability to leave the neighborhood <laughs> and go to work. I definitely, I definitely react uh, to that. You know, that was yeah. definitely part of my journey was, you know, sort of the, the grieving the loss of the office space and the in-person contact mm-hmm. that I had with clients, which for me was so spiritually fulfilling, so personally fulfilling. And then figuring out and re-knitting, really challenging myself to lean into that, um, essentially isolation, you know, with family at home and re-knitting a new picture of what was going to be those outlets, you know, for myself. And I think a lot of our leaders at scale went through that very personal process and it made them more compassionate leaders in the, in the process. And, and when we talk about the return to hybridized work environments, really what we're talking about is how do we create those environments in a way that don't underscore the gaps where uh, underserved communities uh, like, you know, BIPOC communities, queer mm-hmm. uh, workforce, disabled workforce, who were already, when we were in phase, mm-hmm. you know, in building, feeling some of those gaps, some of those isolations, uh, being passed over, ignored, et cetera, having to fight for themselves all the time so that we don't underscore those difficulties in this very new environment where mistakes are happening nonstop as we try to, you know, build a new structure. Don't be too jealous, you know. I mean, it's it was it was tough out there navigating the world without a West Seattle Bridge. And Laura and I are both West Seattleites, and uh, for those unfamiliar, the West Seattle Bridge is our lifeline to the rest of the city. And talk about adding insult to injury. What about month one of the pandemic? We also learned that the bridge was out of service, and so it was always the running joke that we live on an island in West Seattle anyway. But it really that joke came to fruition. No joke was on us, I guess, at that point. It's a terrible joke. A terrible joke. <laughs> yeah. I remember I remember calling it like a drinking game. First they shut down the schools, mm-hmm. take a shot, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Then they close down offices, take a shot, right? Then you quarantine at home, isolation, you can't go anywhere, take a shot, right? <laughs> then the West Seattle Bridge falls down. I mean, like what's left at that point, really? Yeah. Yeah, at that so, point, I guess that's all you want to be doing is taking shots. Yeah, and just kind of in our own little, <laughs> our own little bubble. All right, Laura, what makes a good leader, in your opinion? I think the short version here is it's the ability to tell the truth, mm-hmm. the ability to tell the real truth mm-hmm. per situation, and that can sometimes be misinterpreted, especially in the in the culture that you and I live in, as is is telling people about what's wrong or what's broken or what's bad. And that is, of course, absolutely a critical skill to have. But equally, I've noticed um, there's room for improvement for a lot of leaders and the ability to tell the truth about what's good and what's working. Um, and to be honest about that, about their own capabilities and about their organization, where is the success happening and the ability to double down on that success. Um, and it, I've really found that it takes um, varying frameworks, uh, personal work and um, efforts to get to the point where you, you can see the truth, know the truth and say the truth in a seamless sequence, mm-hmm. you know, from knowing to saying in a rapid fire succession, there's a trust of self that has to happen so that you can go mm-hmm. from thinking to saying what you see. What traits, characteristics, skills do people need to have, would you say to thrive in today's corporate environment? That's a great question. 
you know, it's funny because you run into burning buildings for work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like I could ask you about the leadership lessons there. And I think there is a lot of overlap in the way to answer your question. The ability to lean into discomfort and to move towards mm-hmm. the things that need to change immediately and to, to have establish the trust in yourself, the self-trust, the muscle memory, the know-how, the frameworks, right? To, you know, uh, what's the saying? Um, if you stay ready, you don't got to get ready, right? Like that, like, you know, to, oh, yeah. to be yeah. ready yeah. to move towards the thing that needs to change to me yeah. is a real pivotal one. But, you know, we do a lot of training and especially when you first get hired on in the fire service of just hammering in certain skills and training over and over and over. And I'm talking basic stuff in terms of throwing on our SCBA pack of bunking up in a specific amount of time of pulling hose. I mean, stuff that is after you do it a few times, you kind of have it, but it is just doing it so many times that you get that muscle memory so that when you do get that call and you're stressed and senses are heightened, you revert back to your training. I bring that up because you talked about that trust in self. I think that then creates trust in self. And by having trust in self, then it creates trust in others within your team. If you're trusting yourself and you can display that, then others around you have trust and and now you can go and work as a team. So yeah, I agree. There's a lot of, a lot of correlation, a lot of similarities. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about what you're doing now. You're working with a startup venture called Included. Talk to me about what DEI entails and how that pertains to the workplace environment. Well, uh, diversity is about uh, centering and acknowledging the richness and complexity of the human experience uh, within the workforce. Mm -hmm. And equity is about naming and knowing that not everyone has had a uh, identical start in life and that specifically there are underserved communities, underrepresented communities, specifically within the workforce. We're talking about Black, BIPOC populations, that's Black, Indigenous, people of color groups. Um, There are instances of women, particularly women of color, um, being underrepresented in the workforce, uh, as well as our queer communities, disabled communities, uh, and neurodivergent communities, veterans, parents at work. It's another identity where, especially for those of us who've navigated that complexity, um, that's a way in which you can not stand on equal footing as well. And so there's so many ways in which um, folks don't start in an equal footing as the individuals with majority group identities. And so we're really looking at when we talk about equity, what does it take to reorganize the structures so that opportunity and access arrive differently to populations that haven't had uniform opportunity and access prior to that. And inclusion is fundamentally about behavior change and organizational change so that there is a sense of home, community, and belonging for specifically starting with those black, brown, queer, disabled, um, you know, neurodivergent, et cetera, populations within the workforce. So that's that's DEI. And, and the reason we do it uh, is so that our workplaces really reflect the customer. 
right? And so that the products that we create are of the greatest delight to the broadest number of customers. And study after study has really demonstrated that the products that we design, starting from an inclusion lens, actually have the widest appeal every single time. I want to go back to the equity part of it. You talked about understanding what it takes. What does it take? Well, Ryan. (laughs) (laughs) You're talking about people of differing uh, backgrounds and especially black and brown communities and queer communities and maybe not having certain access uh, that probably someone like myself as a white male has had. So what does it take to get us to that point to level the playing field? It's a really big and important question. Um, I spent the first half of my career focused on that question through an education lens um, and building, you know, national political movements uh, and getting policies uh, passed and regulations implemented uh, in order to change wage structures and healthcare structures uh, and other parts of our economic system that were negatively impacting, disproportionately negatively impacting low-income communities of color and spent a lot of time thinking about uh, what it would look like for people to think, uh, for people of majority identity uh, to think differently about opportunity and access inside the United States. And that was a time when the private sector was not investing in this conversation. And um, it was largely at the grassroots and nonprofit level. Uh, so it was with great delight while I was an executive coach that I got to see the arrival of the structures that mm-hmm. we had worked with in civil society sort of enter uh, the private sector. And now um, we have leaders who are committed uh, to this question that you're posing, what does it take, uh, and, and, and hiring to solve that question, hiring chief diversity officers, hiring DEI program leaders. But the reason that my co-founders and I have brought our startup to market is because our customers who are these um, business unit leaders and CEOs and chief diversity officers who are running uh, companies and they care to solve this problem, they just don't have the technology and tooling to implement the changes they wish to see. So when we talk about all the other parts of the enterprise, you talk about engineering, sales, marketing, operations, you name it, if there's a part of the enterprise, it has a tech stack. It has a variety of technologies which which integrate together, which allow them visibility into how things are going, measure how things are going, and then drive the changes they want to drive as leaders. They can look and know their data. And that that technology, that capability just doesn't exist on the diversity landscape. And so my answer to your questions is very long answer, is that if you really want to make a change, you got to measure what matters, right? And that's, I think, where we're at in, you know, 2021 with the equity conversation is, you know, I'm, I'm, I love the trainings. I love the books. I've read more than most and been to more than most, led more than most. But um, I'm excited for this new iteration of the space and, and to be a part of bringing technology to DEI. But I guess at the end of the day, it does come down to hiring and, and finding pathways and everything else that you just talked about and mentioned. For as long as I've known you, you've really been focused on your business that is in the career and executive leadership coaching realm. How did this opportunity come about? And what made you take the leap into doing it? I have been so successful and and so grateful to the client base um, that developed 
for, um, you know, what's now named Close Cohen Career Consulting. Um, you know, over the course of the last decade, I've gotten to partner with some of um, the most senior enterprise leaders in the United States, um, you know, Fortune 500 C-suite, uh, down through mid-career professionals as well. Mm. It put me in front of a lot of opportunities. And over that time, I was sort of, I was aggressively educating myself on sort of the, the tech side of the house, engineering frameworks, uh, as well as sort of trying to give myself a, a petite MBA. Um, I, you know, self, I really, I'm a huge advocate of, of self-education. And so it all sort of culminated right around the time of uh, coronavirus. So right before it started, one of my clients is a successful chief technology officer, and he's had two successful software startups. We were partnering together to think about his engineering leadership career at scale in enterprise. And he turned to me one day and said, you know what I've been thinking about now that my company has sold is the diversity space. <laughs> and I, I didn't know what to say. I mean, I, I mean, to be yeah. really honest with you, I don't talk very intensively about it with each client, although I did uh, embed equity frameworks and, and knowledge I had from that time of my career into all the coaching I did, which is part of why I think it was such so wildly successful. And so I said, well, there's something about me that you don't know that you should probably know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I shared with him about the entire first half of my career and, mm-hmm. you know, the articles about me from that time and, and the work that I had done and achieved and sort of the frameworks that I, uh, I believe in. And he said, well, then you're going to have to co-found this company with me. <laughs> and I said, no, I have a job <laughs> and it's like very successful. And, you know, at that time we were opening offices in Austin and New Haven and then the pandemic hit and um, it took a couple months for the reality of not seeing clients face to face to really settle in for me. And it turned out that that was sort of a deal breaker for me. I really love people. Um, And so I uh, found, so my co-founder approached me again. He booked a call with me and he just came on this Zoom screen and was like, round two will you co-found this company? I said, yes. I never looked back. Um, you know, my partner, Elisa Cohen joined Close Cohen Consulting. I'm now a managing partner in that firm. And, um, and she's taking wonderful care of our clients. She has wildly uh, amazing experience as a people leader at scale through a variety of corporations. But yeah, so now I'm just, I'm, I'm a startup person and I'm found And we, you know, I don't know when this is going to air, but um, probably by the time you push this out to air. Um, it'll be public knowledge. We're we've just uh, you know as of yesterday we we got uh, the final investment that's going to close our seed round, and so we're going to market with a lovely valuation, and um, it it feels incredible. Well, congratulations to you and your partners. It's well deserved, and I know you've been putting a lot of time and energy and effort into this. So huge congrats to you on that. Um, I want to hit the rewind button for a second here. You were talking about your background uh, in diversity and previous career before you even started at Laura Close Consulting, which is now Close and Cone. Talk to our listeners a little bit about some of your past. I know a little bit, but share some of that work that you were doing that I guess ultimately has led you to where you are now. It's so funny because... Um, the, I mean, you could call it work, but there was no interest in money at the time. And 
I was sort of like a, you know, I felt like a, a human, a human being on fire for, yeah. um, you know, about 15 years. Um, I couldn't imagine that because I feel like you're a human being on fire <laughs> as of now. So I couldn't imagine you feeling like you were really a human being on fire then I, that, that I, that I would have loved to have seen. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's so funny. I really, in some ways I feel like a really different, you know, I think having kids um, and having responsibility um, mm-hmm, for sure. uh, uh, income stream really, it changes. Wow. Okay. So, but to answer your question, um, yeah, I was just, um, I've always been sort of mesmerized by sort of patterns and injustice. And um, as a young person, um, my family, you know, I think the trigger point looking all the way back, my family moved out of uh, the Long Beach, Los Angeles area to Oregon right after the Rodney King uh, rebellion. And uh, right before I went to high school, and I went from this super multiracial environment to a almost purely white environment after a huge political inflection point. And I was unable to sort of put the two pieces together inside of myself. And so a, f- a few years later, uh, when I got to college, uh, there were some professors who shared literature and just words like frameworks with me that helped me understand the patterns that I knew personally. Uh, and, and then, um, and then I dropped out of college <laughs> and then it was like, we were on the road basically. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, this was right at the time when, when, um, like listservs were happening on email. Right. Mm-hmm. And listservs were so amazing. Like, you know, I was, I was blue collar kid did not come from money at all. And I was here. I was on listservs with, um, students in these Ivy League colleges on the mm-hmm. other side of the country mm-hmm. who had plans and they had strategies and they were going to change things. And I mean, I was like, I lit up like a candle, you know, and I was like, who needs college? Yeah. Give me a bus. And so just went around the country. Uh, you know, I had some co-trainers who were amazing and we led workshops all around the country around um, undoing white supremacy and learning about anti-racism and then, you know, became the leader of a national network of leftist student groups on college campuses and helped develop chapters all around the country and augment campaigns and develop leaders at the grassroots level. And um, I did live in a tree at one point. I mean, it was just, it was an endless (laughs) chain of trying to insert myself into, into, you know, and one of the things that I I really take away from that time is sort of the beauty of what people can do when they pull together, you know, Mm -hmm. to make change. It was a deeply spiritual time. And I also reached a turning point later where I realized, you know, I was arrested over and over again for work, you know, protecting old growth, uh, work protesting racism, uh, being on the border, helping people um, who were being caught um, by my, my uh, the, the migra, the, um, what do you call the, the INS, the people on the border who capture people uh, trying to enter the United States. And, and I yeah. realized that I was putting myself in harm's way um, over and over again. And so that was a huge inflection point uh, when the growing up started. But yeah, that was, that was an amazing time. I'm ready for the Laura Close movie. <laughs> How long were you hanging out in the tree for? I I lived in the tree for two weeks. It's very cold. It's Holy cow. unbelievably freezing yeah, cold. Yeah, yeah, I would imagine. Yeah. <laughs> As a mother of two children, you have your daughter who's in fourth grade and your son who's in first. 
Do you have these conversations with them about some of that work that you did and mom living in a tree for two weeks and mom down at the border and fighting against white supremacy and being jailed multiple times? Are these dinner table conversations? And that's a serious question. I don't mean to joke on that. I'm just curious, like how much you uh, share and instill some of those values with your children and some of those beliefs and uh, fighting for a lot of the social injustice that you fought against and, and still do in your in the work that you're doing right now? For me, that's a very interesting question. I um, I think the short answer is I, I don't talk about it in the way that one might expect. You know, I'm older now and um, I see that part of what fueled me was not just an intellectual recognition, like pattern recognition of injustice, mm-hmm. but trauma as well. I didn't know that it was okay for me to be safe. Mm. Um, And it took most of my life Mm. to date to figure that out. It's a very recent um, understanding Mm. for me. So I was constantly just ceaselessly in unsafe situations. So Mm. it's a tricky topic in that sense, because I, I want my kids to have something different. I think most of us want something different for our kids than what we experienced growing up. And so I want my kids first and yeah. foremost to be good people and to believe that they deserve to be safe um, in the world on a personal level. Um, now this gets complicated when we talk about whiteness and structural um, oppression. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just going to flag that for the people who are sophisticated enough to track that in the conversation. And so growing up in a multiracial environment, I really experienced a different kind of uh, how you're raised versus um, families in our community are in majority white context and so have to put a lot of energy into spelling out what is social justice. It's like an intellectual thing that they teach their kids, right? Because like there's, you're not like bumping up against lots of different kinds of people every day. Um, So I try to make it less of an intellectual experience for my kids. So they're in environments where it's mixed race or we're talking about um, how to be respectful of elders how to be respectful of your your peers in ways that I personally know translate directly into, frankly, like better white behavior in mixed culture situations. So that's a lot of how I, I tackle the topic. And when they're older, you know, they'll they'll see the newspaper clips and all that. Well, they're going to be they're going to be darn proud. Uh, I mean, they already are. But yeah, when they when they read all that, um, I'm. I'm going to go back to our conversation a little bit with included in the in the software that you're doing. I know you shared the, about the closing on this uh, first round of funding and raising money. What can you share with us about what included is uh, able to provide uh, for companies that are looking to really grow in this space of DEI? We're the first continuous DEI platform on the market. And so what that means is that, you know, if you recall what I was saying a few minutes ago, that every other part of the enterprise has the ability for continuous improvement to set goals, um, to plan for those goals, to execute against those goals, and to measure them. And this forms a continuous cycle, right? And when you measure what's happening, it causes you to set new goals. And there's technology that enables amazing results for every other part of the business. And we're bringing that to DEI. And so what that means is that our platform enables leaders to know the demographic story of their workforce, instant assessment, to be able to have um, ML enablement, to um, 
set goals uh, for against benchmarking to then um, you know calibrate the goals to get it just right for how it feels exactly good fit for their company and business needs and then to plan against those to set you know milestones you know what does talent uh, acquisition need to know in terms of hiring what do we anticipate for attrition you know if certain demographics are leaving our workforce in a natural pace of events where sure. when are those opportunities when can we forecast those opportunities for shifting the demographics of our workforce right and then we you have an, we have a, an AI bot that is skilled um, to move through slack and teams to know what the goals and policies are behind the diversity program as it's been assessed and um, implemented into the platform and then the bot travels with the right DEI information at the right time to the right stakeholders in a proactive way um, within Slack and Teams, delivering, um, you know, continuous feedback mechanisms, uh, data-based prompts, nudges, and alerts. And this is a big deal inside the DEI space because if you think about what you know about DEI, it's been almost entirely retroactive in the way it's been implemented and based on lagging indicators. So we we might run a poll to figure out what's happening with diversity or equity or inclusion. And by the time you get the poll done, you crunch the information and you set a strategy, it's already out of date, right? So we're, we're jumping the train and we're getting out there in Slack and Teams to the right people with the right database nudges. Hey, you're not on track to meet these goals for diversity, inclusion, or belonging, uh, or equity, right? And that's going to enable stakeholders to pivot in midstream and improve. And this is what they're doing in every other part of the business. A sales leader would want to be nudged or told if they're not on track, right? And so- you know, Lord forbid that we actually drive results, right? And so that's what we're about is, you know, jumping in there with the right tooling and technology. And then the final piece is is this sort of, you know, really sophisticated, integrated demographics dashboard that shows insights across the entire workforce. So we suck in all the people data from all the different places. It's warehoused throughout the enterprise, HRIS systems, ATS systems, LMS, engagement tools, all this different software has all the people data and it's fragmented. And so the leaders don't know all the insights they need in one place to say, well, what are the demographics of our workforce? right? What are the trends across those demographics? And so we're unifying that data and giving them the information they need to get the goals met that they want to set. Holy cow. I love it. I mean, there's so many moving parts to that. It's incredible. <laughs> yeah, I'm sitting here thinking as I'm listening to you, you know, what kept popping into my mind was about what our kids are going to need to be armed and ready when, when they enter the workforce. Yeah you know, 15, 20, 25 years from now, you're talking about AI bots and being able to program all of this. I'm always thinking about that now as, as a parent. I feel like what what we probably thought of as potential career options and work options are so drastically different than what might even be available and, and an opportunity and even a, a job that can be done for our children. And there's probably stuff that we can't even think of right now that will be out there. But as I'm just listening to you talk about all of this, that's where my mind is going. Yeah. Yeah. I can't, I mean, it is funny. I, I mean, personally growing up in a super humble environment, I could have 
never mm. imagine my current life, like not in a million years, or the, that I would be a yeah. software founder is so far yeah. outside the realm of reality. I mean, every day I wake up and I feel like I am in a movie yeah. maybe or something. But I, you know what, you know, my short answer to your pondering is, is that it takes all types, you know, to run sure. the world. So we still we still need guys to run into burning buildings, Brian. Until the bots are ready to to do it. Well, uh, <laughs> well, I think this comes back to earlier in our conversation too about trust in self and with what we're doing, and that we're also going on the right path, and that there are multiple mm-hmm. paths, and that there doesn't have to be the same as as you're showing right now. You've gone from leaving this thriving business that you started now to a whole new one. And you might have another who knows what's next. And I I think that's not to put limitations on our, on ourselves is so important and it's so easy to do. It's so easy to box ourselves in, whether that's out of fear of what other people might think or fear that we won't, don't have the capability of learning a new skill, but it's just so easy to get into this rut of this is who I am. This is what I do. And I think what you're speaking of is really a good message to everybody that the options are limitless and everything that you just spoke of. I don't know how much you knew of that a year ago or two years ago, but I feel like you could do a, you know, a thesis paper, or a dissertation on on everything you were just discussing there. There's plenty of doors that we can open if we're willing to to do so and walk through. I love the way you put that. I really do think that um, self-trust is one of the, Mm -hmm. it's sort of, it's sort of the X factor, right? When people look around and say, well, how do I get to that other destination point in my life? You know, be with like love or work or money or, or fitness or anything and, and, and trusting yourself and, 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 and letting yourself be um, powerful um, and trusting that there's more for you in whatever place in your life that you're, you're wanting more is, I think it's, I think it's the secret. It, it is. It, I hundred uh, percent agree. And it's also, I think it's just doing the one thing that gets you a step closer. I, I, I can only speak to myself, but I have so many ideas and there's so many things that I often want to do. And so I'll have this big picture, but then I sometimes get lost in the, in the little steps of, of, of following the blueprint to get there. And so then it starts feeling overwhelming. And I think there's some importance to, and I'm, as I get older and more grounded, I'm learning this more, but it's just do the next thing and then do the next thing after that. And then do the next thing after that. You know, whereas I think in my younger years, I had so many ideas and visions, but I would never take a step because it just seemed too much. I either didn't know where to go or it became overwhelming almost. So then it became easier to do nothing. Uh, Something that you and I share, although you're more um, expert at it than I am, (laughs) is um, experience with CrossFit. And um, I, so I was in, I was in CrossFit from 2009 Mm -hmm. to uh, like 2015. And it was life-changing for me. And, you know, you say like, do one thing, right. And in the CrossFit framework, Mm -hmm. it's like, don't think, just lift. And that was a really big one for me, honestly, right? Like I, you know, especially the first year, I think I went into that CrossFit box, like terrified, like shaking scared, like every single day. And I just didn't have a choice. I just had to sort of like, you know, 
eat the meal one bite at a time. You know, you just have to like pick up the bar and you have to lift the bar. It doesn't matter. You can't talk to the bar. You can't make jokes with the bar. Like you just, you don't think just lift. And, and, um, I was already, you know, kind of a, a human being on fire, but I really feel that, that, that particular fr- framework added a lot of value to my mental game. Yeah. No, I think that's a good point. You know, as a, uh, someone that uh, co-founded a, a CrossFit gym, I, I recognized that fear that exists with a lot of people of just getting in there. And one of the, I think one of the things that makes CrossFit great is also one of the things that scares a lot of people away. And it is that kind of whether competitive aspect or measuring everything. And so it fires a lot of people up, but it can also create a, a, an environment that can be terrifying uh, for, for individuals that aren't as comfortable with that or have a background uh, in that space. But that's why I always tell people just just get through the door. You know, if you just get here, the rest will take care of itself because you'll have a group that will be there to encourage you and support you and cheer you on. You'll get a good workout in. And uh, yeah, what did you say? Don't, what was it? Don't think, just lift. Don't think, just lift. <laughs> it's, it's like grip it and rip it in uh, golf. Yeah, don't think, just lift. I need to do a little more thinking. <laughs> Okay, Laura, I've got uh, uh, just a couple final questions here with what you're doing now. How has the pandemic and really specifically the movements for racial and social justice that we've seen take place over the past year, how's that impacted you both personally and professionally? Mm. I think, you know, my first thought um, in response to your question is that, you know, at the inflection point of the murder of George Floyd this last summer, um, the first thing I felt was old. Mm. Um, I had been involved in, in um, so many uh, attempts to foster um, both black liberation movements um, you know, corrective policies and white anti-racism around the United States uh, over the last two decades that, um, you know, there was a, there was a brief pop of sensation of like, where has everyone been? Um, and then additionally, I actually, um, I, 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 I ducked out of work and I, I went to some of the marches um, in Seattle's Capitol Hill, where most of the big events were. Um, and uh, with my, with my friend and your friend, Eric uh, Skrepka mm-hmm. and, yes. um, we were old. We were old. Um, and this, this might be more unique to the Seattle environment, but like we were the only people there, you know, for miles around, it felt like in our forties. Um, so, uh, so that was interesting. Um, I think it's unfortunate that it took this long. Um, but I'm also, I'm someone who was mentored by some amazing, um, black liberation movement leaders, who taught me when I was younger that this was not going to end in our lifetimes and that I would have to be learn how to become patient. Um, and that is something that I'm really seeing more deeply now than ever the truth of, I mean, it is a blessing that the movements have entered the private sector. Uh, it is a blessing that so many people have stood up and, and participated um, and coronavirus very obviously was a contributing factor to how people um, banded together and invested their time in caring about this topic um, in a in an outpouring that we hadn't quite seen um, before. So that I don't know if that answers your question, yeah. but that's just a collection of my thoughts. 
No, absolutely. I feel old way too often in way too many situations anymore, <laughs> but so it is. <laughs> Although, you know, I really, it's funny you say that. I, I, I will say this, even after I make that comment, I make a really conscious effort not to be somebody that mentions my age or make those comments like, oh, this is going to date me by saying this or, oh, I'm feeling I'm feeling old. It's like a conscious thing that I do not to put energy towards that. I, I really, I don't know why. I mean, it's not like I'm gaining anything by doing that. But in my mind, I think it's so I try to stay very present and focused and, and try to enjoy what I have now because there's plenty of things that with age, I, I'm much more content and happy with life. So I don't look at that as a detriment, but to your point, yes, it is funny when you catch yourself in certain situations where you're like, damn, I'm no longer the, the young one here, or I'm kind of fish out of water, right? All of a sudden you're like, am I that person that I used to talk crap about 20 years ago? Yeah, I think coronavirus and the quarantine have given a lot of us um, these kind of extensive mm -hmm. reflection periods. So that would be a topic for sure that I feel that I've spent some time thinking about. And so if you're someone who might consider themselves getting older, right? Like I feel like this time away from the structures of society and work have really opened up these kinds of reflections with a, a lot more depth. Yeah. yeah, no doubt. Laura, in your own words, what does it mean to be brave? Wow. I think it means being willing to jump. I like it. Now I'm going to close our talk with some parting shots. Okay. I want you to just fire off the first thing that pops into your mind, a book or TV show that you can't stop talking about. Radical Candor by Kim Scott. Mm -mm, I don't know it. Talk to me. Give me the, give me the quick overview. It's uh, the best book on leadership on in the market. Okay. High praise. I will definitely read. Okay. A non-living thing that you cannot live without. Red wine. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, touche. Right to my heart for sure. <laughs> If you are not in your current space of work, what would you be doing? Outdoor landscaper. No kidding. Outdoor landscape. Can I hire you? Do you need a side hustle? <laughs> I'm busy. <laughs> All right. You are happiest when? Running. Running. Holy cow. That's your happy place, huh? Yeah. I get to listen to music and there's wind and there's sun. And then at the end you get endorphins, which are a legal drug. And I am very into them. The only thing I really enjoy about running is, is what you said at the end there, the endorphins. And I actually do run fairly consistently. So I'm not knocking running. I do it, but it's, it's like an exercise in, in misery for me for that 45 <laughs> minutes or whatever that I'm out there. It's just like, Okay, just get through this, get it done. <laughs> we get to run on Alki, which is extra special, I'd say. You know, that is extra special. No no joke. We live in an incredible area, and you're spot on. It, I, I do feel fortunate every time that I go down there. Although I prefer walking with uh, coffee in hand when I'm on Alki, but, you know. <laughs> All right, you have to do something that you're scared to do. How do you quiet the fear and proceed anyways? Don't think, just lift. Boom, that's a mic drop right there. 
Laura Close, thank you so much. Best of luck to you and your partners at Included uh, with everything that awaits in the future. Thank you, Ryan. Okay, we'll see you soon. And that's a wrap on this episode of The Bravest Kind with your host, Ryan Schaefer. Be sure to check out my website, ryanshafer.com. That's R-Y-A-N-S-H-E-A-F-F-E-R.com for more podcast episodes and information happening in my world. Also, don't forget to subscribe to The Bravest Kind Podcast. And if you feel so inclined, please take a moment to leave us a rating for the show. We'll be back at it with a new guest next week. Until then, be brave and be kind in your own lives. 